So sometime around the second century AD, there lived a Buddhist monk called Nagarjuna. And he may have lived in southern India. We don't know exactly where, but we know that he wrote in Sanskrit. And we don't know very much about him other than that he wrote what became one of the most influential Buddhist texts of all time. It was called The Fundamental Verses of the Middle Way. And this is an excerpt from a chapter called The Investigation of the Ennobling Truth. The Dharma taught by the Buddhas relies on two truths, ambiguous truths of the world and truths of sublime meaning. Those who do not understand the difference between these two truths cannot understand the profound reality of the Buddha's teaching. So what I want to talk about tonight are these two truths, which are often referred to as relative and absolute truth. This idea of two truths is really fundamental to what we're doing here. And it's a teaching that's found in some form, as far as I know, in every school of Buddhism, which there's not very many teachings that that's true of. And it's very much a defining idea of Buddhist thought and an essential element of the tradition of Burmese Buddhism that Steve and I have practiced and studied and are presenting here. It's the idea that as human beings, we're multi-dimensional, we're multifaceted beings. Our lives play out on different levels of reality. And what we're doing here is learning to connect with those different levels of reality. So I'll start by talking a little bit about how we normally see things. And this mode of seeing is called panyati in the Pali terminology, panyati. And this is another one of those many Pali terms that's difficult to translate into English. And different people use different names for it that capture different aspects of its meaning. So it may be called relative reality or conventional reality, conceptual reality, consensual reality. These are all names for this one level of reality that point to different aspects of it. The term that I find most helpful to use for myself is conceptual reality, because that points directly to what this level of seeing things is made up of, which is concepts. It's what you might call our conceptual model of the world. And it includes all of our ideas about what things are and what they do and how they're related. And Steve spoke some about this last night about how we construct our sense of ourselves, our identity and existence out of ideas, out of concepts. And really we construct the whole of conceptual reality, what we're used to thinking of as the world, out of ideas. So for example, just sitting here right now, we all have a conceptual framework for what's going on. You know, we know that I'm me and you're you and this person's talking and other people are listening. It's evening, it's October 2009. We're here in the meditation hall at Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Washington State on Earth. All of that kind of understanding, which is vast. If we really started to list out all of the concepts that each of us has, just about what's happening in this very moment, we could go on and on and on and on. <coughs> And that vast array of concepts is active in our minds all the time. 
whenever we're tuned into this conceptual level of reality. So this whole conceptual framework that we operate within is what Nagarjuna called the ambiguous truths of the world, which is why it's sometimes called relative reality. And we come up against this quality all the time as we move through life. The concepts are fluid, they're relative. How they form and change depends on all sorts of different factors. So since we each have a unique mind and body, a unique history, we all end up with unique conceptual frameworks. And for the most part, there's enough overlap that we can work together well enough to get by. But we see all the time how we run into problems due to the diversity of our conceptual frameworks. People just have different ideas and different opinions. And everyone really has their own unique view or interpretation of what's going on at any given time. Even if, we, even if we have a very similar opinion to someone else, it's never exactly the same, not in every single little detail, every single little particular. That's why if you take a group of people who are all experiencing the same events, each one will have different ideas about what is happening, different thoughts, ideas, interpretations, reactions. So again, just here in the hall right now, we're all sharing the same basic experience on kind of the most obvious gross level. You know, we're seeing the same surrounding environment. We're hearing, hopefully, the same sounds and words. But each of us is really having our own completely unique experience of all of this. Just to begin with, we each have a different concept of who is experiencing this. For each of us, it's me, but that's a different person for each of us. And then we all have different ideas and opinions about each other and who they are in the hall and the speaker and the talk. Who's young, who's old, who's attractive, who's not? Who's a good yogi, who's not? Who has what virtues or vices? As Nagarjuna says, it's all ambiguous. It's all subjective, it's all relative. What's true on this level depends on who you ask. And we see that even our own ideas and opinions change over time. We pick up new ideas, we discard old ones. Some ideas remain relatively fixed over our lives, some change very quickly. So even our own personal conceptual framework is not stable, not a given. It's also mutable, open to change, open to evolution. These discrepancies are very obvious in the world today and all of the conflicts over who has the right worldview in a situation. And Steve talked about that a little bit this morning. You know, is it the Americans or the Iraqis? Is it the Christians or the Muslims? The Israelis or the Palestinians? The Democrats or the Republicans? You know, each of these groups, actually each individual within these groups, feels like they have the right view the correct understanding of the situation or conflict. But the fact is that no one actually has the right view, not in any kind of absolute sense, because these are all just conceptual truths. They're inherently subjective, inherently ambiguous, inherently diverse. And speaking again to the question this morning, it becomes potentially very harmful 
on both the personal and the societal level when we believe that they are otherwise. The classic metaphor for this level of conceptual reality is that it's said to be like a mirage or a rainbow. You know, conditions come together, light, moisture, heat, and sand, a particular viewing angle, and, and a rainbow or a mirage appears. And when those conditions change, then it also changes or disappears. And so it is with all of the conceptual world's various views and opinions. This is a teaching on this subject from the Mahayana tradition. It says, know all things to be like this, a mirage, a shape in the clouds, a dream, an apparition, without essence, but with qualities that can be seen. Know all things to be like this, as the moon in a bright sky, reflected in some clear lake, though to that lake the moon has never moved. Know all things to be like this, as an echo that derives from music, sounds, and weeping, yet in that echo is no melody. Know all things to be like this, as a magician makes illusions of horses, oxen, carts, and other things, nothing is as it appears. So way back at the beginning of the retreat, I mentioned the Buddha's teaching to the inhabitants of Kalama, how the Buddha had been wandering through northern India and one day arrived at their capital and the people who saw him were very inspired by his air of nobility and serenity, but they were also skeptical, which was a good thing. And some of them approached him and said, you know, we've had so many teachers pass through our city and eloquent teachers, ones who make very convincing arguments for their views, ones who make very convincing arguments against other teachers' views. And how can we know what to believe? And I want to repeat his response again because he gives just such a great laundry list of all the various flavors of ideas and concepts that make up our conceptual picture of the world. And he's also really pointing out the inherently unreliable nature, the ambiguous nature of ideas and concepts. So again, he said, never believe any spiritual teaching because it is repeatedly recited or because it's written down in scriptures, or because it's been handed down from teacher to, to disciple, or because everybody around you believes it, or because it has metaphysical qualities, or because it agrees with what you believe anyway, or because you can rationalize it. Don't believe it because it's a point of view that you need to defend, and don't believe it because the teacher is a reputable person or because the teacher says it is so. So when I mentioned this story and this teaching last time, it was to illustrate how the Buddha was really urging us to see for ourselves what's true, what's not, what's useful, and what's not, what leads to less suffering, and what doesn't. How we should only believe what we can actually find to be true through our own investigation of our experience, and not to be satisfied simply with taking someone else's word for it. But actually, the implications of this teaching are much broader than that. 
So the larger teaching is that we shouldn't rely on our own ideas and views for understanding either. That we shouldn't trust our own version of conceptual reality any more than anyone else's. So if we think about it, what the Buddha is really saying here is that we shouldn't rely on conceptual truths at all for our understanding of reality. Not other people's ideas, views, or opinions, and not our own either. If you look at this list that he gives to the Kalama of what kinds of understanding, what kinds of knowledge and information not to trust, about half of it refers to not just swallowing someone else's conceptual view of reality, the things we hear from others or read in books, ideas handed down by tradition or held in popular, popular belief or espoused by a convincing authority. But the other half of the list of untrustworthy sources of truth refers to our own ideas and views, to the conceptual reality that we create in our own minds, our own reasoning, conjecture, analysis, imagination, the ideas and views that we arrive at because they seem reasonable, logical, probable, convenient, or appealing in some way. So this is a very radical proposition that we need to look somewhere else entirely other than conceptual reality in order to gain true understanding, reliable understanding, and wisdom. In this big meditation manual by Mahasi Sayada that Steve and I keep referring to, there's a chapter on just this topic that I'm talking about tonight, the topic of relative and absolute reality which was actually the inspiration for me putting this talk together. And there's a whole section where the Sayadaw kind of expands out these unreliable sources of knowledge that the Buddha mentions in the Kalama Sutta. And when I first read it, it really made me reflect for the first time just how much of our worldview really does come from these conceptual sources. So much of our understanding of ourselves and the world is really secondhand. It's mind-boggling just to think about our childhoods and all of the ideas about ourselves and life that we absorbed then, from our caregivers, our peers, our communities, the media. And we can really see that here in retreat, you know, just how entrenched some of those ideas are. So we may have been told when we were young that we were smart or that we were stupid that we were attractive or unattractive, that we were fun or we were boring, that we were good or we were bad, basically. And yet, if we reflect a bit, we can see that these were just other people's opinions, their own relative subjective view of us, based on all of their conditioning, their history, their own worldview. But if we don't recognize this, then we hang on to them, we continue to believe in them, and to relate to them as if they were really true in some absolute objective sense. And it becomes so clear as we look how harmful this can be, how much suffering it can cause. And I can see it among my own friends, you know, the people that I know. I have one very dear friend who early on in his life was labeled as learning disabled a very popular label in our society these days, because he had certain difficulties with performing 
and achieving, proving himself within the educa educational system, the way that it was structured at the time, performing in the ways that were expe expected to qualify successful in the academic setting. And he really internalized this label of being disabled, of being deficient in some way, of not having what it takes to succeed. And so now, even as an adult, despite having really tremendous talents, a lot of creativity, some really wonderful personal qualities, he goes through life expecting to fail. And this is a very common kind of scenario. There's really no objective reality to that view that he's deficient, but he's internalized it so deeply that it's still a real fetter, a real impediment, and a great source of suffering in his life. On the other hand, at the other end of the spectrum, I have another friend who early on in her life was labeled as gifted, another label we hand out these days. You know, the work that was demanded of her by the educational system came really easily. She was really good at standardized tests and multiple choice questions. And she just sailed through her youth getting top marks and lots of praise, prizes, and came out of it with a very high opinion of her own abilities, her own qualities that she really was gifted, that she was better than others in some objective way. And she's continually surprised and disappointed in her adult life when things don't go so easily for her, when her career or her relationships don't go quite the way she'd like, when people don't automatically recognize her inherent superiority. And that, too, in its own way, is a source of difficulty, challenge, and suffering in life. And we could all come up with examples like this of ourselves or people we know who are limited by early messages that they hang on to. And we can see here in our own minds how it plays out. We absorb and trust all of the secondhand knowledge from very early on and then it sticks with us through our lives if we don't examine it. Every single idea that we have about ourselves in the world is acquired in one of these two ways illustrated in the teaching to the Kalamas. We either adopt other people's ideas, taking on kind of ex externally imposed conceptual truths, or we reason things out for ourselves, creating internally generated conceptual truths. And so much of our understanding is gained in this way that we take it completely for granted. So just as an example, we can reflect on how do we know what gender we are? <laughs> Some, a really basic facet of our identity. You know, how long have we known that we were male or female? How did we first become aware of it? Can we even remember? Who were the people or what were the experiences that convinced us of that? And what if nobody had ever told us that we were a boy or a girl? How would we know? Would we know? Is there any experience that we can point to in the body or in the mind that corresponds to femininity? Any experience that corresponds to masculinity? Does our back pain have a gender or our wandering mind? or our pleasure, or our pain. If we look, we see that there is really nothing in our actual experience that communicates this very basic aspect of our identity, who we think we are. 
So this is just one of countless things that we know about ourselves and about others on this level of conceptual reality. Things that we take completely for granted that are all just really gained through unreliable sources of views and opinions. So what about this kind of intimidating and rarefied sounding thing called absolute reality? What is that? In Pali, the word for it is paramata, paramata, which can be translated literally as true truth. It's the truth that's really true. And the English term for it that I like is empirical reality, maybe because of my engineering background again. But that term kind of points to how we experience it. So the term empirical in science means, that some, means something that can be directly observed or something that can be measured. It's something that instruments can detect, can register. So by saying that absolute reality is empirical, it means that's what we can actually directly observe through our senses. It's what our instruments can pick up through the senses of this human organism. These are the realities that we can know for sure and for ourselves without resorting to unreliable sources of conceptual knowledge. They're the facts that we can be completely confident about because we can see them, we can know them directly for ourselves. And this is actually a relatively limited set of things. It's a much smaller set of things than is contained in conventional reality, conceptual reality. There's our physical experience that comes in through our nervous system and our sense organs. All of the various sensations that we feel in our bodies, seeing, hearing, tasting, and smelling. And that's really all that ever happens in our physical experience. It's pretty straightforward. Just that same set of things happening over and over and over again, different particular qualities and combinations. So that's where we usually start with our meditation. It's kind of our easy entry point to absolute reality. But there's also our mental experience, which includes everything that we can experience with our minds, which is very different from everything that we can know with our minds conceptually. The content or meaning of our mental activity is the realm of conceptual reality. But the absolute reality is just the direct experiences of our mental processes themselves. What it feels like to think, what it feels like to remember, what the experience of our emotions actually is, rather than the stories that they tell us. So there are these two ways of relating to our mental activity. The way of relative reality, where we pay attention to the content of our ideas and concepts. And we see everything from within the narrative and point of view of those concepts, what we call getting drawn into the story of the thoughts. And there's the way of absolute reality, where we're aware of the fact and direct experience of thinking itself and we don't get drawn into the story, don't buy into its narrative. Instead, we just know what the mental activity feels like in the mind. And an analogy for this 
is that it's like the difference between being on a raft floating down a river with a lot of rapids and being on the bank and watching that raft float past. So when we're caught up in our thoughts, we're really riding the rapids. You know, we're carried wherever that river takes us. We have to go with the flow. And if we're carried over a rock or a rapid, then we're stuck along for the ride. And we, all we can really do is hold on and hope for the best. But if we're sitting on the bank of the river, observing our thoughts from the perspective of absolute reality, then we can just watch the raft float by, and then the next one, and then the next one. So we can rest in a place of stillness on firm ground as all the thoughts float by. So this level of absolute reality is fundamentally different from conceptual reality. It's actually completely unrelated to concepts. Of course, we can and we do use concepts to describe it, like in this talk. This talk is being presented within conceptual reality, or in the meditation instructions, or in the reminders that we give ourselves of how to practice. So we use words and concepts to point towards absolute reality. But the actual experience of it is non-conceptual or preconceptual. A good example of this is trying to describe in words the flavor of a food. So take chocolate. <laughs> Maybe those chocolate brownies that we got to enjoy yesterday. You know, how would you describe their flavor to someone who had never tasted it? And I've actually been in the position of trying to describe chocolate to, to people in Asia where it's just not part of their culture. It doesn't keep in the climate and they've never tasted it. <laughs> Would you say that it's sweet, it's rich, it's chocolatey? <laughs> end up sounding like a Nestle commercial or something. <laughs> you know, if you're a real gourmand, you might be able to come up with some more elaborate descriptions. I actually have a friend who's kind of a big shot sommelier in Washington, D.C. And um, she's passed a few of these really difficult exams that the French wine authorities give. You know, they have these blind taste tests and you have to identify like the type of the grape and where it was grown and the vintage and the processing, you know, techniques and stuff. And it's only a very small elite group of people that ever managed to pass these things. And her ability to describe the different elements in a bottle of wine and the flavor of a bottle of wine just boggles my mind, you know, oaky or fruity or vegetative or, you know, I don't even know what all. And these things are meaningful to her and this very select group of people. But is it really possible to convey that flavor through a conceptual description? You know, you can't. The only way to actually know that flavor is to taste the wine, to taste it for yourself. And that's how all of absolute reality is. The direct experience of it is something else altogether from any description of it. So this example of the flavor of a food is a fairly simple one. But the same principle really applies to all of absolute reality. You know, what does heat really feel like? Does it feel like that word heat? You know, of course it doesn't. It has its own unique taste, just like chocolate, just like wine which we can only know by really feeling it directly in the moment that it's happening. What does joy feel like or sorrow? We have to actually feel them to really know. And those direct experiences, although related to the concepts of them, are something else entirely different from the concepts. 
And yet most of us are so used to relating to our life through the medium of concepts that we often don't realize that we aren't really feeling some aspect of our experience. We can take it for granted that we know what we're feeling when it's not actually the case. If you talk to the average person on the street and you ask them, do you know what you're feeling? You know, they'll say, of course. Of course I know what I'm feeling. And yet we all know, after spending even these few days in retreat, that there's a lot more going on than what meets the eye. And I came up against this early in my practice on my first long retreat. I got a bit into the retreat, and uh, my mind started going through this kind of personal history review that a lot of us get to, to experience when we're in retreat. And there were a lot of painful emotions coming up. And I was trying to be diligent and notice all of the, the emotions, really recognize them, try to put a word to what they were so that I could describe them in my interview. But I could never quite seem to figure out what I was actually feeling. I had ideas based on the content of the memories that were coming up as part of the personal history review. So I would have the idea that this kind of thought ought to bring up sadness, or this one ought to bring up anger. You know, if I was reading about these kind of stories that were playing out in a book, or watching them on TV or in a movie, that's, those would be the emotions that I would expect the characters to feel. But somehow I never felt quite confident in my labels and my recognition. And I kept going into my interviews and complaining that I didn't know what I was feeling. So at some point, I just gave up. And I stopped trying to figure out what I was feeling. And the funny thing at that point was that I started to actually be able to feel what I was feeling, to make that shift to the absolute reality, the empirical reality, because I had let go of all the ideas, the trying to figure out what I was feeling. I started to be able to connect with all of the sensations moving through my body the changing texture of the mind as various thoughts and memories move through. And it was still all mostly unpleasant stuff. That didn't change. But at the same time, there's the experience of being awake and actually living the reality of my emotional life in a way that I hadn't in years, in a way that I had even forgotten was possible, in a way that had been hidden, really, by all of the ideas and concepts about what I was feeling. And at that point, I didn't care anymore what the name or the rationale for my feeling was, was. The truth of the experience in the present moment was far greater, far deeper than any of that. And ironically, it was also at that point that I did finally begin to be able to actually label my emotions if I chose to, just in a very simple, straightforward, and easy way, because I was finally actually feeling them. So it became clear which experiences it would be appropriate to call sadness and which it would be appropriate to call anger. But I wasn't blinded by those conceptual labels anymore because I was able to see the absolute truth of just the direct experience behind them. So one way of thinking about what we're doing here is that we're learning to make this shift in perception from relative reality to absolute reality. 
from our concepts and ideas about experience to connecting just with our actual experience directly. And everything that we do here is really in the service of that endeavor. The whole structure of the retreat is set up so that we don't have to spend any more time than is necessary in relative reality. So we come to the secluded place where we won't be bombarded by media. We leave our personal responsibilities behind. We can kind of let go of the to-do lists. And things are arranged so that we don't have to interact with each other very much. So as much as possible, we can drop our ideas about relationships and all of those concerns about being liked or not liked and getting along and compromising and cooperating. We only have to do a minimum of work so that we can let go of ideas about doing and accomplishing things. And we don't read and write, which are by nature conceptual, part of conceptual reality. So everything's been optimized so that we don't need to engage with concepts any more than is absolutely necessary. Obviously, we can't completely do without them, but we can minimize them. And the instructions are all designed to keep pointing us back to absolute reality, back to awareness of our present moment experience. And still things may start to seem complex at times. You know, there's so much going on in the body. There's so much going on in the mind. All of our thoughts and emotions and feelings and intentions. But it's all really just about being aware of something that's really true. Something that's truly true in this moment. Something that we can actually feel. And it could be anything. It doesn't really matter what. So long as it's an empirical reality, an absolute truth something that we can directly sense with our mind or body. And there are lots of techniques and skillful means that we can use to help us to do this and help us to disengage from our ideas and concepts and connect more with the fundamental reality. But it all really just comes down to being aware of something, anything, that's really true right in this moment and then in the next moment and then in the next and the next. So if we follow the schedule as best we can, and we follow the instructions as best we can, and we listen to our teachers as best we can, then inevitably we'll begin to connect more and more with absolute reality. There's actually no way of avoiding it. If we're making our best effort to be aware of what's happening, then we will get more and more tuned into our direct experience. And you guys are all so much more sensitive to, to your direct experience now than when you arrived, you know, however many days ago last week. And that as best we can part in what I was just saying is actually really important. It's important to realize that all we need to do is our best. We don't need to do any better than our best. We're trying to make a fundamental shift in our perspective. And that's very difficult. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes practice. Joseph Goldstein likes to use uh, this analogy of the Big Dipper when he teaches about uh, relative and absolute truth. You know, it's so hard to see that particular arrangement of lights in the sky when we look up at night and just not immediately move to the idea of Big Dipper. 
You know, we see the stars up there, they're arranged in a certain pattern, and poof, there's that concept, Big Dipper, just pops right in. So there's a very strongly conditioned tendency to relate to experience through concepts. It's not something that we have to choose to do. Most of the time, it's not something that we do choose to do. It's just a conditioned function of the mind. It's something that minds do. So the process of trying to see things differently is often messy. It's often frustrating. That's part of the process. It's kind of like tuning an old radio that actually has an analog knob that you have to adjust very carefully to tune right into the station that you want. So we, in our mind, we have the conceptual station, which is kind of like talk radio, you know. <laughs> incessant, incessant chatter, uh, call-in shows, pundits, obnoxious commercials. And then we have the absolute station, which plays all sorts of interesting music. And it's commercial-free, no talk. We may or may not always like the music, but it's always interesting. But there's always a space between the two where there's a lot of crosstalk. The signals get mixed. So we may flip back and forth, just, just catching little snippets of things, or a lot of static. And it can be a bit grating in that in-between place. Just like when the radio is not quite tuned into a station, it can be a bit agitating before the absolute station really starts to come in, clear and strong. We have to be very sensitive to the action of the dial and get a lot of experience in adjusting it to be able to tune just right in to the station that we want to pick up. But with time and patience, then we can find it and we can listen to what's playing. But even as we do this, it's important to remember that there's no inherent conflict between these two ways of seeing things that as human beings, our lives just naturally include both of these levels of reality. And they're both valid within their own spheres. So it's not any part of the Buddha's teaching that we need to reject conceptual reality, but just simply to see it in its proper light. The Buddha himself, after his enlightenment, didn't just keep sitting under the Bodhi tree, you know, experiencing absolute reality until he passed away from dehydration and starvation. He hung around the Bodhi tree for a while, enjoying his newfound peace and liberation, but then he moved on. He got up, he ate, he drank, he talked to people. And he engaged very actively with the realm of concepts, teaching what he had learned for decades, but without being fooled by the conceptual world as he moved through it. That was the change. And Mara, the lord of illusion, who's this kind of embodiment in the ancient teachings of the delusion of conceptual reality, he would still come and see the Buddha all the time. He liked to visit the Buddha, trying to fool him or entice him with some form of greed, hatred, or delusion. But the Buddha would just kind of wag his finger at Mara and say, I see you. He wouldn't say, I hate you, Mara or go away, you're bothering me. But just simply, I see you. I see what you're up to, and I'm not buying it. It's like looking at something with the naked eye versus seeing it with a microscope. I can remember very clearly from my uh, first junior high school biology class 
the first time that I saw organic material through a microscope. They had these, uh, it was after the days when they asked us to kill frogs, so they had these uh, earthworms that were kind of marinated in alcohol or something, who knows, it smelled awful. And we had to take a kind of a cross section of the worm and you know, we learned to prepare the slide and diet and stuff. And to a room full of you know, 12 year olds, this was incredibly disgusting, you know, ooh, really gross. <laughs> But then we put our slides under the microscope and it was an entirely different thing. It was an entirely different world in there, an entirely different way of seeing that same material. And it's not that one of those is the right way of seeing the worm and the other one is the wrong way. They're just two different contexts, two different levels of relating to the same thing. So seeing relative and absolute reality is kind of like that. There's no inherent conflict between them. So it's not that as we learn to experience absolute reality, we start walking around saying things like, this stream of mental and physical phenomena is going to the dining room. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> you know, we still say, I'm going to the dining room, I'm eating, I'm meditating, I'm breathing. But there's an understanding, even as we say those things, that there's a deeper truth behind them, a deeper level of seeing things. Or to put it maybe in more compelling terms, when we say, I'm in love, or I have cancer, there's an understanding of the level on which, yes, that is true. But there's also an understanding that there's a level where there's a deeper truth. And we can hold both of those at the same time. So I've talked for quite a while now about relative and absolute truth and what they are and how we shift between them. But there's really a very fundamental question about this topic that I haven't addressed yet. And that's simply, why bother? Inevitably, at some point, or at many points in this process, we're bound to ask ourselves, you know, what am I doing here? What is this about? We all know and love conceptual reality. It's familiar, it's easy. It's where we live our lives and grow up and grow old. It's where we have relationships and careers and vacations and retreats and spiritual paths and all of that. And most people live out their entire lives on the level of conceptual reality without ever getting an inkling that there's an alternative. And yet we wouldn't be here if we didn't realize on some level that conceptual reality has some very serious drawbacks, some serious flaws. And these are the very flaws of dukkha that Steve spoke about last night. That relative reality simply doesn't deliver on its promises of happiness. It makes so many promises, it offers us so much, and yet how much does it really deliver? The truth is that conceptual reality is actually exhausting. And this is especially obvious here on retreat, the dukkha of it. You know, have, have any of us not seen that? The endless stories, the endless dramas, the endless memories, the endless fantasies. You know, it's not long when we're looking at it before we're just sick of it. It's oppressive, it's dukkha. It's not long before we just wanna say, you know, enough already, <laughs> I wanna break. We want so much to be able to find some remedy to this, you know, some secret trick, 
you know, you guys come into the interviews asking, how can I make the thinking stop? <laughs> and we just laugh. <laughs> but what we really want is not actually to stop thinking. But what we want is an escape from conceptual reality. So we're here because we've realized on some level that there has to be another way. There's got to be an option. And because we have faith that on, on some level that there is another way. And this is that way. Precisely through tuning into absolute reality, through awareness, through mindfulness. The Buddha said in the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, which is the basis for the practice that we do here. This is the only way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path, for the attainment of Nibbana, namely mindfulness. So out of this faith, out of this intuition that there is another way to find happiness, we end up here. And as I said before, if we just do our best, then we'll start to connect with our actual experience in more moments. And compared with being caught up in the dramas of conceptual reality, this feels great. Because connecting with absolute reality gives us a chance to rest. It's like a vacation for the mind. And you've seen this in your experience for shorter or longer periods. Those times when we can just really relax into the present moment and feel a breath, hear the sound of a bird, notice a thought coming and going. Mostly there's nothing special going on in these moments, but they're real. They're the real experience of our lives. And so they're rich. There's a vitality in them. Even the unpleasant experiences, when we really connect with them, are alive in this way, are real in this way. And the more that we cultivate the ability to rest in absolute reality, the more these moments can become a place for rest and rejuvenation. The more we can resort to them for a well-earned break just from the hard work of being ourselves. And that's an invaluable benefit of this practice. It's a great asset in life for our mental health and well-being. But that's not why the Buddha went to the trouble to teach this practice. So reflecting again on Nagarjuna's verse that I spoke at the beginning, the Dharma taught by the Buddhas relies on two truths, ambiguous truths of the world and truths of sublime meaning. Those who do not understand the difference between these two truths cannot understand the profound reality of the Buddha's teaching. So we practice tuning into absolute reality so that we can realize truths of sublime meaning and understand the profound reality of the Buddha's teaching. And this brings a depth of equanimity that goes beyond the momentary relief of letting go of concepts and thoughts. It brings lasting relief, the relief of deeply accepting how things truly are and living in harmony with that understanding. This can sound pretty lofty, but it's actually a very natural and lawful process. It all unfolds spontaneously, automatically, really. 
just from connecting over and over again with our actual experience in the present moment. And there's actually nothing else that we can do to arrive at the true peace and freedom of equanimity. Steve spoke last night about the three universal characteristics of experience, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. How all experiences are fleeting, unsatisfying, and beyond our control. And how this insight, seen repeatedly on deeper and deeper levels, lays the foundation for the mind to break through to the unconditioned, which is liberating insight, transformative insight, into the deepest nature of what we are. There's no way to make the mind make that leap into the unconditioned. There's no way to predict if or when it might happen. There's no way to explain after it does happen, why it happened, when or how it did. But it's the dharma of the human mind, a potential that's programmed into all of us, that when the conditions are ripe, then the mind will make that leap. And conditions ripen through insight into the three characteristics. But how do we arrive at that insight into the three characteristics? What lays the foundation for that insight to arise? And it's just through connecting over and over again on deeper and deeper levels with absolute reality. So at first, we're mostly seeing the specific qualities of each moment, the particular sensations in the body, particular thoughts or feelings in the mind, cold, heat, pain, pleasure, aversion, craving, all of these specific qualities that characterize any particular moment's experience. And for a long time, this may be our practice. This is the level we're working on, just making that shift over and over again from being lost in the stories of conceptual reality to directly sensing absolute reality, and then getting lost again, coming back, getting lost, coming back, getting lost, coming back, getting lost, coming back. (laughs) Until at some point, the mind shifts gear from seeing the specific qualities of a moment's experience to seeing the universal qualities that it shares with all other moments. So from seeing heat or cold or pain or pleasure to seeing anicca or dukkha or anatta. And this isn't through analysis or reflection, as Steve was saying, but through direct sensing of those universal aspects of absolute reality. And there's no way to make the mind make that shift to the three characteristics. There's no way to predict if or when it might happen. There's no way to explain when it does happen, why or how. But it's the dharma of the human mind, a potential that's programmed into all of us, that when the conditions are ripe, then the mind will make that shift. And we can help to ripen the conditions through awareness, through mindfulness, through connecting over and over again with absolute reality. This is the only way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path, for the attainment of Nibbana, namely, mindfulness.
There are two collections of poetry in the Pali Canon called the Terigata and the Terigata that contain the enlightenment stories of the earliest Buddhist practitioners, the very first people who practiced in this way in the time of the Buddha and realized the deepest truth of freedom from suffering. And some of the poems are really fascinating in just their intimate and honest portrayal of spiritual life. We can really see how it was no different for those men and women 2,500 years ago walking this path than it is for us today. And I'd like to share one poem from a woman named Patachara. Patachara had suffered through a very traumatic adult life. She lost her husband and her two young children and her parents and her brother and also her family home all in a very short period of time through just some horrible tragedies. And she was wandering basically out of her mind with grief when she first encountered the Buddha. But she joined the order of the nuns and she practiced diligently. And she went on to become a great teacher and mentor to many other women. It seems that the depth of her own past suffering gave her a profound compassion, which helped to inspire others. And her enlightenment poem really illustrates the immediacy of her connection with absolute reality that led to her liberation of mind. She says, bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my room, checked the bed and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. Just as the lamp went out, my mind was freed. Her description is so timeless, so accessible. You know, we can almost picture her there with her wash basin, mindful of the coolness of the water, the touch of it on her skin, all the movements of washing, lifting the basin and pouring out the water, seeing the glint and glimmer of the water moving down the slope. We can imagine her really settling into the present moment, each sensation of lifting her lamp, walking, preparing for sleep, sitting down, just moving so carefully and mindfully as she picks up the pin, moves her hand, presses down the wick of the lamp. And in that very moment, connecting so deeply with the simple truth of her experience that her mind broke through to the deepest knowing, the unconditioned Nibbana, and was liberated from all illusions and the suffering that they bring. And it's just through this kind of very simple, direct connection with what's happening that the whole of the Buddha's teaching becomes clear to us. I've heard that Kamala's teacher, Munindra, used to say that if a yogi just sits and knows that they're sitting, all of the Dharma will be revealed. So let's sit for a moment and know that we're sitting. <laughs> <laughs> 